Our scripture reading this morning is selected verses from 1 Corinthians 15, Galatians 1, Galatians 3, and Galatians 5. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. This is God's word. Amen. Thanks be to God. So thank you, Susan. Good morning. Uh, I didn't introduce myself earlier. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the uh, pastors here. Wow, lots going on this morning, isn't there? We're grateful that God continues to move in our midst. Uh, We are in the middle of a series just for these 10 weeks while we're in one service together this summer. We're talking about what we're calling our theological vision. And and what we mean by that is we're, we're trying to talk through some some of the strategic applications of our theology that shape our ministry as a church in the particular and unique cultural time and setting that God has placed us in. Let me, so that's what we mean. What is a theological vision? It is, it is strategic applications of our theology. So it's something a little more practical than theology, but it's something a little more doctrinal and theological than just ministry methods. It's strategic applications of our theology that shape our mission as a church in our unique cultural time and setting. These are our core commitments. That's what we mean by, by this word theological vision. And last week we began with the gospel. Because above all else, we believe that God has sent us to Winter Haven and to Polk County to do this great work, to introduce irreligious non-Christian people and to reintroduce religious and Christian people to the gospel because we believe more than anything else that our city needs the gospel. It doesn't need us to major on politics or end-time theology. Our city needs the gospel. 80% of people in this city have no affiliation with the church. That's 80,000 people just in Winter Haven. 20% do, but of the 20% that do, most of those people are in a very religious and sometimes legalistic environment. And therefore, gospel ministry to both irreligious and religious people 
has to be a core, core commitment that we, that we give ourselves to. And so an emphasis on the gospel. And one of the reasons why this emphasis on the gospel is that as you come across people, as you live and work and play in this place, you'll, you'll see that many people claim to have rejected Christianity. But here's what I want to tell you. I don't think most people in our culture that, that would say that have rejected Christianity. I think they've rejected the, the religious knockoff of Christianity. Not the true gospel of grace. And so we have a lot of work to do here to reclaim that for ourselves and for those that God has called us to. We are firmly committed to preaching the gospel. But here's the second thing. This is this week. So we're firmly committed to preaching, teaching, befriending the gospel into one another. But the second thing, we're talking about gospel renewal today. So not only are we firmly committed to doing this, but we're firmly committed to staying on the gospel. We're firmly committed to preaching, teaching, and befriending it into one another's lives, and we're firmly committed to staying on the gospel. And the reason I have to say the second part is because there's a general sense in the evangelical church that the gospel is for non-believers only. That we would say the gospel is the ABCs of Christianity. And if you listen closely, most of what you hear from Christians goes something like this. Well, you know, you become a Christian by believing the gospel, then you grow in your Christianity by trying harder. It's a different strategy. You start with grace, but then really on a day-to-day basis, you know, you go back to relying on your own effort. But isn't that exactly what Paul is warning about in Galatians? He writes to remind not only the Galatians, but also the Corinthians of the gospel. He says, I would remind you of the gospel which they received and which they must stand in. So he says, you don't start with the gospel and then get busy with other things. You have to hold fast to it. You have to stand in it every day. Or the Colossians passage that Justin read a minute ago. Continuing in faith means, Colossians 1.23, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. When life begins to fall apart around you, when people you know, just, just start to drive you crazy or really, really hurt you or whenever things are going really well, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. You see, the gospel, you see that there in the little outline I gave you in the introduction. The gospel is not the A, B, C's of Christianity. It's the A through Z of Christianity. That's our topic this morning. The gospel. What do we mean by the gospel? The gospel is not the ABCs. It's not just the beginning part. It's beginning to end. It's the whole of Christianity. The gospel is not the diving board that you jump off of into the pool. It's the pool. You don't become a Christian by believing the gospel of grace in Christ and then grow in Christianity and your Christian life by trying harder. You become a Christian by believing the gospel and then you grow in grace by believing more deeply. See, we said this last week. The key is not behaving differently. The key is believing differently. We're always, the problem we're always trying to solve is the reason we, it's the reason we started with that song. It's one of my favorite, every, you'll notice, but just about every time I lead worship, I kind of try to fit that, oh, help my unbelief song in. Because that's the, that's the problem we're trying to solve every week. The problem is unbelief. We're trying to solve this problem of, of unbelief in our lives that we would believe the way that we're meant to. And so the key for personal growth And the strategy for ministry effectiveness and revival in the church is a constant rediscovery of God's grace in Jesus Christ. We are not only committed to focusing on the gospel, we are committed to staying on the gospel because of what what we've learned and what we see. I remember when I first started going to Trinity Presbyterian in Lakeland, I took Tim Rice out to lunch and I told him, you know, it's kind of weird, you preach the same sermon every week. And he said, well, yeah, I do. And then about six months later, I took him out to lunch and I said, you know, Tim, I'm so glad that you preach the same sermon every week. Uh, Because maybe it'll sink in one day. 
And that's why we have to stay on these things, because of what we've learned in ministry, but also what we see here in Galatians and Corinthians. And so three things this morning that we're going to try to do from these texts. First, we want to define, we're going to define the gospel. We're going to work and labor to define the gospel. Secondly, we want to see that the text also speaks to the danger of losing it. And then lastly, the dynamite in continually being renewed by it. So we're going to be working to define the gospel to see the danger in losing it, and to also see the dynamite in continuing to be renewed by it. So let's just start with a definition, okay? The heart of the gospel. What is the heart of the gospel? The heart of the gospel is grace. Look there in verse uh, 6 of Galatians chapter 1. I'm astonished, Paul writes, that you are so quickly deserting him who calls you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which he says is no gospel. And then later he says, he explains this in, in chapter 5 verse 4, Paul says he's, when, when this happens, you're actually being severed from Christ. Do you see that? You're, you're falling away from grace. And so the issue here is grace. The heart of the gospel is grace. Well, what is grace? See, this is the part of the service I'm the most nervous about because we're going to try to use technology here, and I, can I just go on record? I hate it. I hate it. Uh, but I want to show you a clip uh, that I think is the best illustration that I know of what we mean by grace. So let's get that ready, Andrew, if you're, if you're ready. This is a clip from a movie. Uh, Les Mis. Yeah, let me set it up for you before he presses play. Oh, pause it for a second. It's going to be really dark at first, and then it's going to be okay. But what's happened is Jean Valjean, who is the main character in the, the movie or the musical, if you've seen it, is a, is a convict. He was, he was put in prison for stealing a loaf of bread because his sister and her family were starving, and he was trying to help feed them. He's put in jail. He's there for, I think, 18 years, 20 years or something. He finally gets out. Uh, and it's a very hard, hard life. He's walking uh, the road trying to get back home where he, where, where he lives. Can't find anybody who will let him sleep in their house. And finally, a priest uh, invites him into his home and gives him a place to stay. He awakes in the middle of the night. That's where the scene starts. Uh, and uh, Jean Valjean uh, is taking advantage of his host. He's stealing uh, the precious silver from the priest who's given him, who's the only person who's shown kindness to him. And we pick it up right there. Let's go, Andrew. I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, and... thank God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. 
After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madame Gillot, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. Don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I've bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. scene uh, and I and and that's exactly when we talk about grace this is exactly what we mean the priest says I'm very angry with you and you expect that he's angry because he took the candles or took the silver and yet uh, he has a very different reason doesn't he you see this really is what we mean by grace grace is you standing there in the presence of God the one that you've offended guilty with no excuse deserving death and hell because of your sins and yet Instead of judgment, there's mercy and pardon. More than that, in the gospel, you get heaven. That's grace. You deserve one thing, and you get another. And I, I, you know, I, I know how difficult it is even sometimes in our personal lives to grasp this, but grace is love and acceptance that we, that we get from God or that we give to one another, love and acceptance that greets us at the time and place where we are the most undeserving. So when Paul writes to the Galatians about grace, he means a couple of things. Let me just kind of go through this with you. He means first that God's love and acceptance of us is, not, is based upon his character and not ours. His love and acceptance is based upon his character and not ours. So the source of his love and delight for us is not anything in us. He, he doesn't love us because we're good or because we prove ourselves worthy. God loves us because he loves us. Uh, you know, we experience this. If you've been scrolling through social media there's a picture of a little baby, and of course, the mother of the baby comments something like, well, this is the most beautiful baby in the world, and you're thinking, well, actually, I've seen prettier babies than that. You ever had, is, I'm a man, okay? It happens to men. We think that sometimes. Yeah, you might be right. You might be right, but listen, to that mother, you're dead wrong. Because every mother, every mother firmly believes that her child is the, you know, her children are the most beautiful children in the world has ever laid eyes on. They all are the absolute most beautiful. And it has nothing to do with their physical features. It doesn't matter what they look like. It's not how pretty or handsome they actually are. It's her love for them that makes them beautiful to her. 
Does that make sense? You know, so grace means God's love for us is based upon his character, not ours. Grace means that God loves, that God's love initiates. It doesn't respond. Think about that. Grace means God's love initiates. It doesn't respond. I've always liked Anne Lamott's definition. She, she defines grace as love that goes before you and meets you on the way. In other words, God's love is not at the finish line waiting to celebrate you in your triumph. It's not, uh, it's not the medal you get at the end of the race. It's there at the start before the gun goes off and it follows along beside of you through all the ups and downs. The Bible teaches that God doesn't love us because we're good. He doesn't love us because we love him. No, it's the opposite. If we love him, it's because he first loved us. We read just a minute ago in, in saying the good shepherd in Jesus' parable doesn't wait for the lost sheep to find its way home. He leaves the 99 and goes in pursuit of the lost sheep to bring it home. And probably the hardest thing in a relationship is, is that. Who's, who will go first? Who will make the first move? I mean, we've been trained in this all the way back to awkward middle school dances when we're, you know, we're plastered on both walls and somebody's, who is going to take, who's going to take the leap of faith? This is hard, isn't it? But grace means in our relationship with God, he always goes first. He always makes the first move. His love for us always comes before our love for him. His sacrifice for our sake before our sacrifices for his. So grace means that his love and acceptance is not based upon our character, but his. And it's always initiating. It doesn't respond. And lastly, it means, that must, it, means it must be free. It can never be bought. See, the rest of the world runs on the basis of merit. We say, you know, this is the way we live. If you do the work, then you get the promotion. If you're nice to me, then maybe I'll be nice to you. If you do a good, good job serving me, then I'll, do, I'll, you know, I'll give you a good tip. But not Christianity. See, the doctrine of Christ, Christian doctrine of grace teaches that there is no if in God's love, except one. See, I almost got you there. There's no if in God's love except one. And the one if you're in Christ... There is no ifs. No conditions that must be met. In, in Christ, there are rules, but those rules are not conditions. There are plenty of rules in the Bible, uh, but the rules aren't conditions. I have rules for my children, right? All good parents do, but I don't stop loving them if they break the rules. I punish them, but I don't, in the relationship, I don't, stop, I don't stop loving them. The rules aren't conditions. God's love is free. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. As Frederick Buechner put it, Grace is something that you can never get but must be given. I like that. And he goes on in a witty way to say there's only one catch. Like any gift, the gift of grace can only be yours if you'll reach out and take it. But maybe, maybe even being able to reach out and take it is a gift too. So the most central tenet of Christian theology is that we're saved by grace, not by works of the law. This is what the letter of Galatians is about, but what God, by what God does not by our own doing. And that means that there's a certain order. This is what I want you to see. There's a certain order in salvation. If you'd forgive a sports analogy from a baseball freak. Uh, in the World Series a couple of years ago, the hero of the World Series was Madison Bumgarner, a pitcher for the San Francisco Giants. He won game one. He came back and won game five. And then, you might remember, he came in with one out in the bottom of the fifth inning in game seven, and he finished the game. And I mean, he was the hero of the, the thing for sure. They wouldn't have won without him. Hopefully, I hope, I'm hoping that he gets in the home run derby because I've heard he can just drop bombs. So he's a real gruff and big and uh, fun guy. I would want, love to take him to lunch. He seemed like a fun guy. Uh, after the game, he came into the, uh, to the locker room there and he saw that he had a text from his dad. And here's what the text said. And of course, awkward dad text. OMG. You know, 
Men, don't, don't text OMG. That's for middle school girls, okay? Thank you. That one got an amen. I like it. OMG, capitals. You are, so, you are so much more than awesome. I couldn't be more proud of you. So his dad's, uh, you know, all of, these, all of these great words from his dad. But then he noticed. He noticed something. He noticed that he said later, he found, the timing of the text, he noticed that the text had been sent before he walked out to pitch the, the bottom of the ninth inning. Uh, during the top of the inning. So his dad had sent uh, the text. He'd said those things to him before he won the game, not because he won the game. Uh, and, the, and a reporter asked his dad about it later. He said, why did you send the text before the bottom of the ninth? And this is what he said. Here's his dad's words. He said, I knew he wouldn't read that text until the game was over, but I wanted him to know that that was what his daddy thought of him no matter what happened in the bottom of the ninth. That's awesome. Do you see? Do you see the order? Did Madison Bumgarner go out in the bottom of the ninth with his dad's love and acceptance on the line? No. He didn't go out to pitch for his father's smile. He went out to pitch with his father's smile. He already had it. It didn't matter what happened in the ninth. Do you see the order? Which came first, his father's love or his performance? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? But do you know? Do you know? If your faith is in Christ, God loves you like that before you step out of the dugout and onto the field. Do you know that he loves you like that? Not after the game is on the line and you pull out a win. He loves you like that before you get out of bed in the morning. Do you know that? Before you got out of bed this morning, he loves you like that. No matter what yesterday held. He loves you like that at the beginning of every day. To be saved by grace means there's nothing you could do from this moment on that can make him love you any less or anymore because your record is not your righteousness. Let me say it. Your record is not your righteousness. You don't go out into life trying to earn the Father's smile. You have it. So there's a story in Jesus' gospel about a woman caught in adultery. And when Jesus finally gets to speak to her, here's what she says. Here's what she says. John 8, 11, I do not condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Now, the order there is really important. Did you hear the order? I do not condemn you. Now, go and sin no more. If you reverse the order, you step outside of Christianity. Jesus did not, Jesus did not say, if you go and sin no more, then I will love and accept you. He said, no, I love and accept you here. At your very worst, in your greatest shame, I love and accept you. Now, let my love empower you from this moment on to live differently. There's an order. We've got to have the order right. God does not love us because we're good. He loves us before we're good. He doesn't love us because we're good. He loves us before we're good. And when that really comes home to your heart, it makes you good. And so there's a certain order here. And the mistake the Galatians were making is they were reversing the order. So this is our second point, gospel forgetfulness. So Paul writes, I'm astonished, Galatians 1, 6, and 7, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel that there is no other one. But some, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So the gospel, excuse me, is God's love for us before our obedience. His love come, comes first. The Galatians had come to believe that God loved and accepted them because of their obedience. So their obedience came first. So they had begun to turn away from grace, is what Paul says, and back to the law, back to works righteousness. And what we need to know in seeing this is that there is a natural gravity of the human heart. We are always being pulled away from grace and back into works in the way we relate to God and even in the way we relate to one another. And for the Galatians, it's a conscious decision 
we're, we're warned here, verse 7, uh, of those who are troubling them and wanting to distort the gospel. There was a party among the Galatians, the circumcision party. This was a group of people, Jewish Christians, who had infiltrated the church and begun to teach that faith in Jesus Christ was not enough for salvation, that you also had to obey the law. So faith plus obedience. In this case, circumcision. And this wasn't a small thing for Paul. Look at what he says. He says, if you add anything to Christ, then you've stepped out of, it's not, it's not just kind of you've shaded, you've stepped out of Christianity and back into works righteousness. So look at the way he puts it in, in, in chapter 5. If you accept circumcision, he says, you are obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So what Paul means here is that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Add anything to Christ, you stepped out of Christianity. And that's a scary thought because, honestly, we do it all the time. We, we turn rules into conditions. So Jesus and, well, baptism the way we do it. Jesus and the gifts of the Spirit. Jesus and our, our particular theological grid. And it's a very, very big danger. We have to be very careful. We see in Acts, I told you we would be going back into Acts, which we've been in for the last few months. But in Acts, we find the early church fighting this. And the views that Paul's writing against here in Galatians uh, are there as well. They pick up steam and begin to affect not just this Galatian church, but a lot of the churches. And, and, we, and, and we're told there, uh, this view is kind of summed up like this, that it's necessary to circumcise the Gentile converts to Christianity and order them to keep the law of Moses. This begins to pick up steam. Uh, and, and until it was necessary for the church leaders to gather together to decide on the matter. And we find this in Acts 15, which we read just, I think, the week before last. We call it the Jerusalem Council. The church was teetering and in danger of losing the gospel, and there was much debate going back and forth about how much should we demand of people who are going to come into Christianity. And then Peter stood up, and here's what Peter said. He said, we believe that salvation is through the grace of the Lord Jesus. And the church came down decisively on the side of grace. Praise God. Huge historic moment. Because we, we, you know, we may be doing something completely different if that didn't happen. Now, for many of us, it doesn't exactly work that way. It works more like something like this. It's not as conscious. It's more unconscious, but no less damaging. For example, Richard Lovelace, who is actually Tim Keller, really is the guy who taught Tim Keller the gospel. He's written a book on this, and here are his words. He says, Only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Many have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine of justification by faith, but in their day-to-day experience, listen to this, they rely on their sanctification for their justification. Big words there, right? Justification, what's that mean? Justification is... Uh, it refers to God's declaring us righteous because of our share in the righteousness of Christ. Sanctification means uh, or refers to the process of the Holy Spirit actually making us more like Jesus. But there's an order. See, Paul's saying there's an order. Justification first, then sanctification. I am declared righteous at the beginning of the process of being made righteous, not at the end. You with me? Does that make sense? I'm declared righteous at the beginning of the process not as a result at the end. But Lovelace says, in our emotional lives, we often switch the order. We, we begin to rely on our sanctification for our sense of justification. We slip back into performancism. We lose our grip on the truth that God loves us in Christ for his sake, because of his work on our behalf. 
And we begin instead to measure God's love and acceptance of us, our justification, on the basis of how well we're doing in obeying him, our sanctification. We think about our performance first. That's the first thing that comes to mind. We think about how we've been doing first, and then we use our evaluation of ourselves as a lens through which we think about and apply God's love for us. And this is the majority of Christians that I know. The majority of us in, in this room, unfortunately, that on a good day, I'm confident God loves me. I got up, I woke up in the morning, I did my quiet time first thing. Uh, I shared the gospel with a coworker before I even sat down in my cubicle. I got lots of work done that day. Came home, hugged my wife, kissed my kids. We had a great family devotion around the dinner table. Things were, oh, God loves me. And then the next day, I got up too late to do a devotional. I yelled at the children all the way to dropping them off at school. You see how this works? And at the end of that day, I think, ugh. And even in that, see, it's something about the way we view how we've been performing and then we measure a sense of the intimacy with God that we have based upon that. We do this internally. We allow our sense of God's love for us to be determined by our performance. And when we do that, what, what I believe Paul's saying is that that is no different than what the Galatians have done in accepting circumcision. It's turning back just emotionally to the law. So why do we do this? Why do we love the law so much? Why is this such a problem for us? Well, we love the law because we love being in control, and that's what the law promises. It says you can determine your own destiny. Just follow the rules, and you can make life work. See, under the law, the outcomes of our life remain firmly in our hands. And this is why you go to churches in this city, and you hear so many five steps to sermons. Give me five steps to a good marriage. Well, I love that, because if you give me five steps to a good marriage, hey, I can do those five things, and then I will have what I need. Put all my energy into doing the things you tell me to do and make it happen. See, we're addicted to the law because we're addicted to control. And religious people are religious for the same reason that irreligious people are irreligious. They want to stay in control of their lives. So the law comes and it offends the human heart because it says you have to do this. And you know we don't like to be told what we have to do. The gospel, however, offends even more because the gospel comes and says there is nothing you can do. (laughs) And if there's anything we hate more than being told what to do, it's being told that we can't do anything, that we can't earn anything. I didn't expect you guys to laugh there, but that was good. (laughs) That we are helpless and needy and broke. It's interesting, 68% of people who identify as Christian believe that God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible. You know why? Because we want that verse to be in there. We want that to be true that he is beholden to our hard work and moral effort. People prefer churches that preach humanity and it improved rather than Christ and him crucified because there is an offense to the gospel. Sin is not just being bad. Sin is being bad or being good as a strategy to to maintain control of your life. Sin is wanting to be able to do life without God, to do it on your own. And so the sinful parts of our hearts that remain, unfortunately, come Lord Jesus even after we're converted, will constantly be pulling us back towards works, righteousness, and away from grace, back into religion and away from the gospel, taking away our joy and peace and spiritual power in the process. And so where there's a person like me or you or a church that has become stale and lifeless, it's because they've been robbed of the power of the gospel. It happens all the time. It happens in our lives all the time. It happens in churches all the time. And so if the problem is that we're constantly losing 
the gospel. We're, we're, we're veering away from the hope of the gospel like these Galatians and going back to performance-based religion. Then the solution to the problem Paul is describing here is to be constantly rediscovering and being renewed by the gospel. If the sin underneath every sin is gospel forgetfulness, then the key to obedience is ongoing gospel remembrance and renewal so that it brings power into your life for whatever, for whatever cross Jesus calls you to carry. And this is what Paul's hoping for as he writes to these Galatians. I added this Galatians 3 passage. It's not in your worship folder, but Susan read it, and I would, I would point you there in Galatians 3, 1 and 2, where Paul says that it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. It's, a, it's just an interesting uh, way of putting this because the people he's writing to were not eyewitnesses to the crucifixion. So what does he mean that before their eyes uh, that Jesus was betrayed, the word, or, or was crucified? The word there means, uh, it, well, it's the word from which we get our English word graphic. And so, you know, a movie can have violence or it can have graphic violence. Uh, and, and, and a movie with graphic violence is, is violence that's not just implied, it's portrayed in the film in a way that's meant to shock you and kind of cause you to cringe and, and hide your eyes because it's so hard to watch. Paul is saying this. He's saying that his preaching ministry among these Christians resulted in a powerful, clear grasping of the implications of the gospel. See, when Paul preached to these people, the truths he preached gripped their hearts and they became a living reality to them in their soul. So Jonathan Edwards referred to this as having a sense of God's love or a sense of the gospel on the heart, a sensory knowledge, so graphic, so vivid that they didn't just know. He says they saw and they tasted, much like probably the experience that many of you might have had reading the gospels all of your life and hearing of the terrible things that happened to Jesus and then going to the movie theater and watching Mel Gibson portrayed on the screen. You know, and you just, oh. You know, I, I have that thing. I don't pull it out at Easter. I can, I can barely watch it. This is what the Galatians had. When Paul preached, that's what happened in their hearts, but they lost it. And he says, you need to regain it. And so the sin underneath every sin is gospel forgetfulness. And so every sanctification problem then is a justification problem. You solve sanctification problems by solving the justification problem underneath it. Let me say it this way. That the key to overcoming sin is to keep justification and sanctification in the right order. So if there's a problem, it's because they're out of order. It's happened to you. What happened here to the Galatians has begun to happen to you. And, and things have gotten out of order. And to fix the problem, you have to go and dig down and get them back in the right order. So, you know, if you want an example, uh, if I could talk about myself, I guess that'd probably be more painful than trying to talk about you. I'll do some psychoanalysis on me. Let's use the example of lying. I have a problem with lying. I do, unfortunately. Uh, in very, you know, I would like to think in very innocent, you know, white lie kinds of ways. Um, and the, one of the reasons, it's part of my story, but that's, that can become an excuse. Why is it such a problem for me? Well, I lie for a couple of reasons. I lie sometimes because I'm trying to protect my image. I don't want people to think less of me. This is the part where you've got to make sure I don't feel all alone up here, okay? I keep saying this every week. I mean, you know, just like, don't look. I mean, I, if I look out and see these kinds of things, then it's really intimidating, <laughs> Okay, so, you know, I lie, I lie, I lie because I'm trying to protect my image. I don't want people to think less of me. Really a big thing for me, I lie sometimes because I don't want to hurt or disappoint or upset other people. I don't want, I don't, don't want them to be upset with me, really. And so what's the real problem? Well, the problem there, you, it doesn't take a genius. I, you know, I've not gone to counseling for this necessarily yet. 
Maybe I should, but you could probably help me. You know, what's the problem? Well, I need people to think well of me in order to emotionally be okay. I need to be thought of as a good person. I need for Ashley to, you know, think I'm great or whatever the case might be. Why? But why? Why? Because that's my righteousness, see, not the righteousness of Christ. So the sin underneath the sin of lying in my life is the failure to rejoice in and believe in my acceptance through Christ. So it's a justification problem. So what do I do? So what do I do? I have to get justification and sanctification back in the right order. And that's what we mean when we talk about the word repentance. In repentance, here's what I say. I say, you know, I've been living for the approval of other people. That's wrong. My righteousness is not in what other people think of me. It's in Christ. I don't need for them to think well of me. I don't need to manage their impressions of me. I can be honest about my shortcomings and failures, and it won't, it won't really matter to me. See how this works? This is a spiritual discipline, okay? That's the first thing. The sin underneath every sin is gospel forgetfulness, and so the key to obedience is gospel remembrance. And so Paul writes, I would remind you, 1 Corinthians 15, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand. So we talk about preaching the gospel to yourself, and this is what we mean, what I just described. You have to be constantly reminding yourself, taking your heart by the hand and leading it back to the gospel. You know, you don't just believe in the gospel. You have to stand in it. You have to, that word means to abide or to remain. I love, I read somewhere recently, somebody who put it this way, you have to make your home in God's love. I love that. Make your home in God's love. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to talk to your heart instead of listening to your heart. You have to reason out the gospel with yourself. Overwhelm your heart with the content of God's love for you and what Jesus has done on your behalf. His death for your sins, his resurrection uh, for the Holy Spirit power to come into your life and all of these kinds of things. Paul wants to encourage the Corinthians to give generously. You know, well, let me, let me put it this way. Overwhelm your heart with these things like Paul does. When he wants to, um, he wants to encourage the, the, Corinthian, the Corinthians to give generously to a relief fund for the saints in Jerusalem. And here's what he says. You know, I want you to be generous. And then this is the way he does it. He says, because, you know, think about it. Think about the grace of God to you. Think about what Jesus, Jesus was rich and for your sake he became poor. Load that up into your heart. It'll make you generous. When he's trying to motivate husbands to love their wives, he reminds them of the gospel. Husbands, love your wives. What? As Christ loved the church. And so it's a spiritual discipline. That's really what Paul's modeling for us here. But even so, even so is also a work of the Spirit. There is a common everyday spiritual discipline of gospel renewal, but then there are times when the common and ordinary gives way to the extraordinary, when the Spirit of God takes the truth of God's love and grace to you and he brings it home to your heart in a deeper way. When you begin, listen to this phrase, when you begin to experience what you already believe. When you begin to actually experience what you already believe. That's the best way I know to put it. Why we read Ephesians 3 at the beginning, to know there is to have a deeper experience of God's love and power toward you until it becomes a living reality in your soul. You see, when you're anxious or afraid, whatever you're afraid of is your living reality. It's more real to you than God's love. And what I'm talking about here is when God's love and grace become more real, more tangible, more defining than anything else in your life so that you're not afraid anymore. His grace becomes so real that any sin you're guilty of, you don't feel so condemned. And this is a supernatural work of God's Spirit. It's something we cannot do. It's something that He must do in us. So Lloyd-Jones writes that this is what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is in the book of Acts. This experience of having being flooded with a sense of God's love. And here's the thing. Let me say this and then I'm done. 
It's also the makings of revival. What we're trying to describe here, revival is when this kind of gospel renewal, this rediscovery, reawakening to the truth of the gospel so that you begin to experience what you believe, revival is when that happens to a group of people at the same time. Revival is corporate gospel renewal, a season in which a whole body of believers experiences personal gospel renewal together. When ordinary practices of gospel remembrance, like preaching sermons week after week and observing sacraments and so forth, give way to a supernatural move of the Spirit that results in an enormous amount of spiritual energy, just like in the book of Acts. And this, ultimately... This is why we're committed to preaching and teaching the gospel and staying on it because we believe more than anything else. We believe that our city is in desperate need of a church that has experienced revival. But just like the early church, we can't make that happen. We can't, there's, no some, there's not some method that we can do to, to cause God to move in the way we want to. Just as they had no option but to sit and wait and watch and pray, so all we can do is take the longings of our heart to, in, in whatever struggle we come from uh, for him to move upon us like this and, and just beg and plead that he would do that. And so let's finish the service by doing that, can we? Let's just stop and pray. And so, Father, in these quiet moments that we have together, I know I can feel in my own heart, my heart leaps with the thought that this is truly what I, des- I desperately need. What Paul is aiming so hard uh, to cause to happen among the, the Corinthian Christians and the Galatian Christians to see their dead, hard, cold hearts begin to burn with a fire. The fire of your love and grace and presence and power in their life. And so, Father, we so desperately need this. We need this so that we can have the patience and the perseverance that we need. We need this so that we can forgive and love one another as you've called us to. We need this because the world is, is such a hard place to live in. We need it because we, we have moved away in our sin and obstinacy from your grace and the result is that we lack the power and the energy that we so desperately need to be faithful to you. And so we beg and we plead, come Holy Spirit and work in our lives in this way. Renew us that we might be a people of your praise and glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just going to use this as I uh, pronounce a benediction over you. Uh, as you go to pick up your kids, please say thank you. Uh, thanks for being patient with us as we've uh, been a little longer than normal. And uh, I would just ask you to pray, uh, please, for uh, the situation in Orlando. Uh, apparently it's up around 50 people uh, whose lives have been taken. Uh, and, uh, and we just want to mourn over them because, well, their families 24 hours ago had them, uh, and now they don't. Uh, so, uh, Father, have mercy, uh, and, and, and may we, as your people, we pray for our sister, our brothers and sisters in um, sister churches, uh, in particular in the Orlando area, there are many, and that will have many opportunities, and may even have members or attenders who are connected to the situation, uh, and so give them grace, uh, give them amazing grace as they seek to comfort and love in the face of tragedy and death. Uh, in, uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, as you go, receive these words. Uh, this is God's smile over you if your faith is in Christ. So as you go, you go with a smile. And this is a final reminder of that. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you 
and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen.